Matthew 25 is where I want you to be turning. Matthew 25, verse 31, down through the end of that particular chapter. For full disclosure, I'm going to let you in on a secret that many of you already know because if you've talked to me over five minutes, um, you know my thoughts on some subjects. I'm, I'm not um, on, on a lot of social media. I, I, my footprint, my social media footprint is, is nearly zero. Um, I saw a sweatshirt earlier down here by Jessica that warning, I really don't care. It's my, my take on social media. I've, I've said this before, that if you, you post a picture of the fact that you just ate the world's greatest cupcake, I don't care. <laughs> and so I, I'm out of the loop <clears throat> on many things. And so when my wife or kids or some of you will send me screenshots or bring something up, I really have no idea what you're talking about by design. I was triggered, and, and I don't like using the word trigger unless I'm talking about Roy Rogers, but I was triggered just a, uh, a week and a half ago in a conversation with my youngest son who is a, a tennis shoe hound. He collects shoes. He polishes them. It's really a collector's thing. He's really into it, uh, and, and it's, it's lucrative for some people. Um, he, was, he, he brought home some information that uh, some shoes were being sold. Um, that had been redesigned as satanic shoes that were full of references to hell and uh, the fact that um, this person that designed the shoes had rather reign in hell than serve in heaven, not realizing that the word serve in the Bible in the New Testament actually means to enjoy, not being a butler or a maid for God, but enjoying God's presence, not serving God's presence. And so there was a lot of misinformation and misguidance on this young man's life, for sure. Um, but that, that did, it got to me, and it, it, ate, um, it ate at my heart, and it ate at my mind, just because of the misinformation on this one particular subject. I do not enjoy or like sermons that are, that are designed around today's headlines. I don't think that's helpful uh, for anyone. And I, I certainly uh, don't like picking a topic just willy-nilly. But I, I can tell you, just because I know you, and not just you, but I, I know churches in general, uh, that most of you would have to agree with the statement that you've you got to think really long and hard the last time you had an in-depth look on the topic of hell, on the subject of hell, and, and what this means when we tell someone that they need to be saved, but we, we rarely ever tell them what they need to be saved from. And so when our children or grandchildren or, or the news reports or social media reports on tennis shoes, we simply tell the next generation, well, that's wrong. That's bad. That's evil. But we don't have a biblical answer for why that's wrong or, or why that's a problem. You and I have suffered long enough from what I have diagnosed as theological anorexia. That simply means that your normal church person 
is starving to death for the truth, and they don't realize that it's missing from their diet. Theological anorexia. I read a poll, and this poll is two years old. There's a poll taken by the Pew Research Council that knows these things about churches. The mid-40% of of when this poll was taken, of all churchgoers, mid-40% of all churchgoers said they believe that hell is not quite exactly what the New Testament says it is. It can't be that bad. Nearly 40, mid 40% of all churchgoers think that somehow the Bible is not telling the whole truth when it comes to this one topic. Yet, what you might not realize is something very important. Jesus talked about hell a lot. In fact, Jesus in the four Gospels talks about hell more than the rest of the New Testament and the Old Testament combined. Jesus actually had six times more to say about hell than he did about heaven. If you want to be someone that knows the truth, Jesus spoke about hell more than he talked about anything else he ever brought up while he was on earth. Why? It wasn't so he could sell tennis shoes, I can assure you that. It was a word of warning. So what I want to do today is just dive into a section of Scripture and one verse in particular from Matthew 25. And I want you to walk out of here a little less suffering from this theological anorexia so that when the next generation does pop something in front of you on social media, you don't have to say, well, that's wrong or that's evil, that's bad, that's gross. I want you to be able to step back and have some bullets in your gun, so to speak, so that you can give them the right answer from the Bible, from Jesus' own mouth, on why something like this is wrong. Not just this particular topic, but any topic that we could really need to cover with a good answer from the Bible. Read with me Matthew 25, verse 31. Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all of His angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on His right, Come. You who are blessed by my Father inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, 
into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me naked and you did not clothe me sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Father, as we look to your word now, I do pray that you will guard my mouth and my heart and my mind and let me put my confidence in the good news of the gospel, that these indeed are true words, words of warning and words that we really, really need to get into our hearts and our minds so that we can know what we're talking about when we tell people that they need to be saved. Father, this was a subject that you took very, very serious because you talked about it all the time. So as we think of this and read over this, help us to take it just as serious as you and learn to apply this truth to our life. And we pray this in your sweet name, Jesus. Amen. As, as a word of full disclosure and warning, again, let me, let me just tell you that about 96% of what you're about to hear is not from me. Not that I like stealing other people's ideas, but it, just being a good pulpiteer, a good speaker, you need to know that I was informed of this good information by good teachers, good preachers. And I've combined a lot of thoughts from a lot of good people and really come up with my own thoughts, hopefully, prayerfully, to share with you on this one topic what other people have taught me. I'm indebted to people like Tom Schreiner. I'm indebted to Don Whitney and, and those men who fed me while I was in school and taught me about this so that I can stand here and give you this good information. There's seven truths that I want to share with you concerning this one topic. These are things I want you to write down if you want to write them down. Think about them hard and steady and take them home. Share them with your family. Share them with your loved ones because they are from the Bible, so that makes them very, very true and worth our attention. Again, Jesus had a lot to say about this one topic. I'm just going to give you seven things, but it's not going to be from the whole passage we just read. It's just from one verse, verse 41. That one verse, verse 41, is so packed with gospel truth, biblical answers for what hell is really like. Here's the first truth I want you to see. It should come to no surprise to you that Jesus thought that heaven, I'm sorry, that hell is real. It's a real place. Jesus said so, Jesus thought so, and so should we. Jesus is speaking not figuratively here. We know that he speaks figuratively in other places like parables because he always uses similes. The kingdom of heaven is like such and such and so and so. The kingdom of heaven is like so and so and such and such. Here he's not using a simile. He doesn't say hell is like this, that, or the other. He just describes it as a place. He has this real place in mind. And according to verse 31, what we just read earlier, it is a place that's going to show up soon 
when the Son of Man comes. It's something that's headed straight for us. It is a place that is so real that in another part of the New Testament, in Luke chapter 16, when Jesus is indeed speaking in figurative tones, he's speaking in a metaphor, so to speak, He's speaking in a parable about a man named Lazarus that goes up to Abraham's bosom and a rich man that goes down to Hades. And the rich man speaks to Jesus, speaks to Abraham, speaks to heaven, and is praying, someone, go to my brothers and warn them, do not come to this place. It's a real place. You say, Clyde, I, I get that. I, I know that it's a real place. I, you don't have to sell me on that. I'm not so sure. Because statistics don't lie. And if some 44 to 45% of all churchgoers do not think that hell is what the New Testament says it really is, then I may be talking to someone in this room that needs a little convincing. Jesus spoke of this place as a real place. Not fake. Here's another thing I want you to hear. Not only is it a real place, but hell is, lack of a better word, separation. To be totally separated from God. Again, verse 41, you see the words, depart from me. Depart from me. Imagine that there are people who will be here on this day, Matthew 25, where the nations are gathered before Christ's throne. And the only time they ever lay eyes on Jesus Christ, he immediately tells them to get away from him. Isn't that sad? The only time they ever see Christ, he tells them to leave. That's so sad. But again, it is the biblical truth. Let me give you a couple of verses here to wrap your mind around. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. Paul writes to the Thessalonians and says, Those people who are going away, they will suffer punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and away from the glory of His might. That's pretty easy. They're departing. They are away from God. Nothing hard to understand there. Yet over in Revelation 14, verse 10, John writes that they will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Paul says they're away from the presence of the Lamb. John says in Revelation that they are in the presence of the Lamb. Who's lying? Neither. This is not a contradictory statement. God is what we call omnipresent. You know what that means? He's everywhere. Omnipresent means that he is everywhere at the exact same moment. Earth, heaven, and eternal damnation. <gasps> Clay, you just said God went to hell. No, God is physically not in hell. But don't you think the people that will be in hell or have him in their mind? Don't you think they are thinking about what they rejected? Don't you think they are recalling sermons that they heard, vacation Bible schools that they went to, opportunities that they had to fall in line behind Christ and totally rejected Him? Yes. 
God is in heaven. People in hell are thinking about him right now. They are thinking what they walked away from. What you have in hell is a knowledge of God's wrath, but not a knowledge of God's love. Someone that has influenced my life dearly wrote years ago, The damned in hell will know God by his wrath, but neither on this life or on the life to come will they ever understand his mercy. It shocks my system. They understand his wrath, but they do not and never will understand his mercy. Hell is being separated from God, yet you remember and know exactly what you've done. Hell is a place. It is separation. It is also, thirdly, meant for a very specific group of people. Look at verse 41 again. Depart from me, you cursed. Not you wounded who simply need a band-aid. Not you sick who need help along the way. But you cursed. Shades of Genesis chapter 3. You are cursed. The picture here is clear. You've seen it from chapter 25. There's sheep, there's goats, there's righteous, there's unrighteous. There's people on the right, people on the left. And immediately you think, well, I know which side I'm in. I know which category I fall into. I hope you do have that confidence. And I hope that confidence is in Christ and not on your own good works. Please do not be this type of person that thinks if I do enough good in my life, I will get in. If my good outweighs my bad, then he will be impressed enough with me to let me into heaven. Love wins, don't you know? Of course, people like Hitler don't get in. When we think in terms like that, we immediately, in our minds, race to memo. Because everybody's got a mama that's sweet and kind and makes good biscuits. Of course, she's in, right? It's mama. Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. Those who are relying on their works are under a curse already. Present tense. If I collect enough gold stars, if I jump through enough hoops, if I serve enough vacation Bible schools, if I hide enough Easter eggs, then he will be impressed, he will love me, he will let me in. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says if you are counting on your good works to save, you are cursed already. You might need to call Mammal. Good deeds count for nothing. The Bible is clear. Your good deeds are worthless. Isaiah 64, 6. Very famous. You know this verse. Isaiah 64, 6. All of our righteousness, all of our good deeds are nothing more than filthy rags before Christ. I will not take the time to do a word study on filthy rags. I will simply say it's disgusting. Your good deeds are filthy rags before Christ. Think of it. You know your sins are bad. Your bad thoughts, your bad language, your bad attitudes. I know that's sinful. I I know I need forgiving for that. But my good deeds, 
I help at night to shine. I attend Sunday school. I do all of these things that are impressive for the church. I do good stuff. Yet that good stuff counts for nothing. The best you could possibly do. The best you could present before Christ. Is nothing but a filthy rag. Let me ask you just to think with me for a second if you can. I'm not good in math. I will never uh, pretend to be good in math. But if you can, for just a second, put yourself up here with me and look out at this crowd. And let's just divide this room straight back to the camera, left and right. On the left, we're going to put a we're going to make a number line. On the left, we're going to make negative numbers. Negative one, negative two, negative three, negative four for eternity. You with me? Right here at the camera, there's a zero. On this side, there's positive numbers. One, two, three, four, five, all the way to eternity. That's a number line. You with me? Now, again, I'm not good in math, but some of you, you're smarter than me. You can figure that out, what a number line is. Again, if my, if my negatives are not as bad as my positives, he'll let me in. He'll be impressed with me. I, I may not be... 110, but at least I'm not negative 70 like that guy, right? Well, the Bible says from Isaiah 64, 6 that even your good stuff counts for nothing. Your sins count for nothing, so where does that leave you? Sitting at zero. And you cannot help yourself. You cannot do one single thing for yourself to move your position. Jonathan Edwards the great Puritan preacher from centuries ago. He said, my sins are infinite upon infinite and multiplied times infinite. To be cursed means that you are cursed. You are helpless and you cannot fix yourself. There are not enough gold stars to collect. There are not enough holy hoops that you can jump through that's going to make God say, I need to save her. Or he's good enough to come in. That's not the biblical answer. Hell's for the cursed. Fourthly, hell is eternal. Two times, verse 41 and in verse 46, you see the word eternal. We don't think in terms of eternal. We think in terms of right now. In fact, you're probably at some point within the next 10 minutes going to start thinking about what am I going to eat for lunch I'm thinking about right now. I'm thinking about later this afternoon. I'm thinking about work or school tomorrow. I'm not thinking in terms of forever infinity. We'll show you, teach you a $10 theology word. You ready? Annihilationism. Just to be totally annihilated. It means when you die, you just simply go away. There is nothing else. You're just worm food. There's no hell. Now, now heaven can be real, but hell, that's, you just go away. You cease to exist. That's not what the Bible says. Again, two times we're told that it is eternal. We fail to see the greatness of the person that we sin against when we think that we just simply go away. 
that it's swept under the rug, that it's forgotten about. Let me prove this to you. You ready? Don't do this. But if you were to get really angry with me and pull out a gun and shoot me, you may or may not make WTVA. Who cares if you shoot me? Well, who am I? You take a handgun and point it at the White House, within 30 minutes, there'll be a TV station in Zimbabwe, Africa, that is interviewing your third grade teacher saying, I thought he was a great kid. They're going to know everything about you. Again, why? Who am I? Versus the president. Everybody knows who he is. Nobody knows or cares who I am. When you sin against an eternal God, it deserves an eternal punishment. Does that make sense? There's no such thing as going away. Hell is eternal, and that's what we have to warn people about. David, in the Old Testament, as an old man, you know this story. Up on his rooftop, late in the evening, he notices on another rooftop across town, there's a young lady named Bathsheba taking a bath. Dirty old man. He notices, and he keeps noticing, and he won't stop noticing. He goes downstairs, hey, go over here to this town, this street here in, the, in town, and bring me that young woman. I, I, I want to make her mine. In other words, I'm going to rape her. She becomes pregnant with child. Okay, let's fix this. Go to the front line of the army and bring her husband home. Give him a three-day pass. Send him home. See if we can just work some magic here. Maybe this will go away. It doesn't. And you know what happens. This good and righteous man, Uriah, is sent back to the war and is killed. David, being the good man that he is, takes in Bathsheba to his home as his wife. Rapes and murders. That's pretty bad. Yet when he is confronted with this sin, it breaks his heart. He is contrite. He knows he sinned. And he sits down with a paper and pen and he writes out the words to Psalm 51, which begin, Against you and you alone, O God, have I sinned. What do you think Bathsheba was thinking when she wrote, read those words? What do you mean against God and only God have you sinned? What about me? What about my, my husband that you had killed? David did not dismiss his pain that he inflicted on this woman and her husband. But he recognized first and foremost, I have sinned against an eternal God. I have done wrong in his sight. I need to make things right with God way before I can make things right with God. You, Bathsheba. Hell's eternal. Here's a fun one. Hell is fire. Did you catch that? It's fire. Here's a $64 million question. Is it a symbol or is it literal? Because depending on who you ask in religious circles, you may hear that it is a symbol. Oh, it can't be that bad. It's just punishment, but surely God is not going to burn people. It can't be a real fire, can it? 
Matthew 25, verse 30, Jesus says that it is pure darkness, does he not? There's gnashing of teeth. There's anger. Think with me for just a second. If this is just a symbol, how do you define a symbol? A symbol is something that represents something grander, something bigger, something better. See my left hand? There's a ring on my left hand. That means I'm married. I am happily married to a smoking hot woman. I caught my limit. I don't want another. I'm happy. What if I lose that ring? Just, I lose it. It's, I, where did it go? I may have to explain to her how I lost it. Does that mean that I'm no longer married? No. What if I suffer an industrial accident and my arm gets cut off? And I can't, I can't wear my ring on my left hand. Does that mean I'm no longer married? That she has to give me back? No. That's ridiculous. It's just a symbol of something that is grander. Something that's bigger. If hell is indeed a symbol of what God does to the curse, then hell is beyond our imagination. Can you think of a worse way to die or to be eternally punished than be cast into a lake of fire and you're never, ever, ever relieved of it? That's the symbol? What's behind it? What's bigger than, badder than that? No, this is a real thing that Jesus is referring to. It is a literal place, not a symbol. And it is something that we need to take into our hearts. It is something that we need to wrap our minds around, and it's something that we need to warn people. This is what you are being physically saved from. Not only is it a fire, but sixthly, it is a prepared fire. Not just a fire, but it is a prepared fire. Jesus uses this same word prepare in Matthew 12, but he uses it there as a word of comfort. Disciples, I'm about to leave you. I'm going up to the Father, but when I go to that place, I'm going to prepare you a place. Prepare a place for you. Many of you have seen and you live in some remarkably beautiful homes, even if they're not grand and and huge with space. You've got really good-looking homes. We've all seen homes that are just massive, these multi-car garages and multi-layers and swimming pools, and you think, gracious, that's that's a big house. That's That's a nice place. And yet you can put one up five, six months at a time. It takes nothing for human beings to put up a grand house, right? It takes nothing, just time and lots of money these days to put up large dwelling places. Look around you at planet Earth. Look at the massive size of planet Earth. Jesus did that in seven days. He's been working on heaven for over 2,000 years. Can you imagine the place that he's making us? 2,000 years of nonstop work making you a place, preparing you a place. Imagine if that same worth ethic of Jesus was applied to hell, which it is. I'm going to prepare you a place, but I'm also preparing a place for Satan and his demons. 
2,000 years that he's been preparing a fire. Does anybody in this room besides me like to grill? I didn't say eat. I know you like to eat. Do you like to grill? Nobody in their right mind would get a, a, a pile of charcoal, squirt some lighter fluid on it, strike a match, throw the match down, run inside the kitchen and grab some meat and bring it and put it right there on top of that fire. That's ridiculous. Well, I lit the fire, but it's not ready. It's not prepared. You have to wait. It has to catch up. It has to turn orange. And it takes a little while for that, that fire to get right for the meat. This is what we're seeing here when we see that Jesus is preparing a fire. It's not an instantaneous thing. It's something that's worth the wait for, for hell's punishment. It's a scary thing to wait on this. It's a scary thing to imagine. Again, for 2,000 years, he has been preparing this fire. Again, nobody in their right mind would agree that the best barbecue comes from a microwave. It doesn't. It takes time over a prepared fire. And I've already alluded to the last point, and here it is. Hell is all of these things, but ultimately it is prepared for the devil and his angels. Just mentioning that little phrase there, Jesus not only speaks truth about hell's not being a symbol and being a real literal place, but he also speaks highly to the fact that there's a real devil, there's real demons. It's prepared for the devil and his minions. It's not prepared for you. It's not meant for me. In fact, it's not meant for any of us. It is prepared specifically for the devil and his demons, his followers, his minions. Now, people do go there because they reject Christ. They live against what the Bible says, and they think that it's perfectly fine for them to do so because nobody's warning them, stop doing what you're doing. You're going to hell. And hell's a real place. It's a real fire. It is a prepared fire, but it's not meant for you. You're not supposed to go there. I watched a baseball game yesterday for the first time in about 18 months. It was on TV. Growing up, as I did in the 70s and 80s, there was a certain baseball team that would come on out of Chicago and they had the, a sportscaster that called all of their games. and People just loved to listen to him speak. And every seventh inning, he would stand and lead the crowd and take me out to the ball game. It was, it was a wonderful experience for many people that love baseball. Years ago, CBS This Morning interviewed this man upon his retirement. What's next? I'm going to do this, that, and the other. What's the future hold for you? Where are you headed after this? Jokingly, he said, Well, I know I'm going downstairs because that's where all of my friends are. What makes the matters worse is that man went home that afternoon and died the exact same day. If you're in utter darkness that Jesus warned about, how do you see if, if a friend is close by? 
If you can find a friend down there, does that not somehow remind you of all the time you spent with them and how that led you to where you're at now and vice versa? Let me ask you this question, Hillcrest. If you think that this is going to be a fun, enjoyable event, and it's really not that big of a deal to think of, stop by Lowe's or some other home improvement store on your way home and pick up a blowtorch. Shove that blowtorch up your left nostril and cut it on. How much fun are you having? Fun. Pull it out, cut it off. Call all of your friends. Get on social media. Be at my house at 6 o'clock. We're going to have a party. We're going to enjoy ourselves. When they all get there, stick it up your right nostril and cut it back on. Are you having more fun now that your friends are with you? See how that works? I'd rather reign in hell than serve in heaven. Hell is a place to be punished for your sins, never to enjoy them. Let me close this by giving you some application. And this is meant for you, right here where you're sitting, not so much for the people outside of this room. It's meant for just you right here, right now. Everything that I've said to you is inevitable without Christ. You can spend an eternity in hell, and you do not have to lift a finger to get there. It's inevitable. Keep living like you are. That's fine. Do you. Ignore what the Bible says is wrong. Be flippant about it. Better yet, decide in your life now, I will handle that later. Maybe when I get out of high school or out of college or get married or when the kids are grown. But right now, I'm having too much fun enjoying the way life goes. It's inevitable. That everything that you've just seen is going to happen. You do not have to do anything. Your fate is sealed. Secondly, everything that the Bible says concerning hell, everything that Jesus just told you from Matthew 25 is inescapable once you're there. We are never told that the gates of hell have a doorknob on the inside. You cannot purchase your way out. You cannot bribe your way out. No one left here can pray you out once you are there. Find me the verse in the Bible that teaches that. It's not there. Once you're there, you are there. And it is eternal. Again, in Matthew 25, Jesus says that there in that place is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping. There's a million reasons to cry. But have you ever thought, what does it mean to gnash your teeth? Not grind your teeth like a kid does when they're taking a nap. But you're gnashing your teeth. And you're weeping. Why would you make this face? Because you are mad. And you were angry. And you were in hell. And you now understand what it means to hate God. I hate him. For what he did to me. Knowing that you did it to yourself. It's inescapable. But I will not leave you with just bad news. 
Here's the really, really, really good news. Everything that Jesus just told us about hell is completely avoidable. Completely avoidable. And all you have to do is seek Christ to save you. His grace is greater than your sin. No matter what you've done wrong, no matter how many times you've done it wrong, no matter how many times this week you have said to yourself, here I go again. I'm in the pit again. I have failed again. And you pray that prayer, Lord, it's me again. I have messed up once more. He is faithful. He is righteous. He is loving. And He is kind. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8 says that His love covers a multitude of sins. I want you to take that information and I want you to run with it. Not over tennis shoes, because there are other topics that we need to cover to fight off your theological anorexia. So that when your children and grandchildren or people at work ask you questions, when they come up for Easter egg hunts and they, they've got a question on heaven, or they've got a question on hell, they've got a question on the church, you don't say, well, that's nice, or that's gross, or that's good, or that's bad. You can step back and say, again, from the scriptures, here's what we believe to be true. That is my heart for you, Hillcrest. That's my heart for my family. Hell is indeed a real place. And yes, people go there daily. But they don't have to. You don't have to. We have been charged with the greatest task known to humankind. To tell people of a Savior that saves and changes changes us completely. I'll simply ask you if you know that truth in your heart. Don's coming and is going to lead us as we sing and respond. And as he's coming, I know that Tracy will be down front. Others will, will be down front. If you need to see someone after church, don't get in your car and go home with this stuff beating you in the head. Find someone and grab them and talk and pray. That's what we're here for. You stand to your feet, and as you're standing, let me close us in prayer. Father, as we now respond to the truth of your word.